Radio Aspiral is a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media. Presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney, it covers a host of topics from international media, publishing, aviation, and technology. Thank you for listening to this podcast today. Welcome to episode 13 of Radio Aspiral. You're very welcome. We've got a great guest for you uh, as normal lined up uh, today. I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Our topic once again is Malaysia Airlines MH370. You're very welcome. Today we're going to be joined by Blaine Allen Gibson, uh, he's our guest. Anybody familiar with the case of Missing Airlines Malaysia MH370 will be probably quite familiar with um, the name Blaine Allen Gibson. Intriguing uh, gentleman, we'll be talking to him very shortly. Good to be back for uh, another episode, uh, episode 13, uh, How Time Flies. This is the second uh, episode we've had this year. Once again, we're talking about uh, Missing Malaysia Airlines uh, MH370. As I've already said, my guest tonight is uh, Blaine uh, Alan Gibson. Uh, this evening for me, it's morning time for him. We'll be joining him shortly. Uh, just very quick uh, a bit of promotional detail uh, this is a radio aspire you're listening to uh, we're available wherever you can find most major uh, podcasts podcasts and uh, video casts uh, you'll find our website at radioaspile.com we're available on, on Facebook Twitter uh, YouTube we also are on most of the uh, audio and video platforms SoundCloud Spotify uh, Apple Podcasts and uh, iTunes, uh, many others. 
Uh, I suppose the first thing we should do is just give you a quick sort of uh, bio on uh, Blaine Allen Gibson for people maybe who aren't uh, familiar um, with him. Uh, Blaine Allen uh, Gibson is a lawyer by training but a true adventurer in spirit. He's lived in Seattle for many decades but his travels more often than not take him away from his home. He's visited virtually every country you could care to think of. His father was a World War I veteran and in later life became the Chief Justice of California. His mother was a graduate of Stanford Law School and an environmentalist and her frequent travels with a young Gibson sowed the seeds of a budding adventurer. Gibson's goal? Visit every country in the world, a challenge he's almost completed. He first heard about the news of missing Malaysia Airlines flight MH370 on the evening of the plane's disappearance while watching TV in his family home of 45 years where he grew up. Travel and mystery are often the core of his daily life. The end of the Mayan civilization, the great Siberian explosion at Tunguska and the location of the lost Ark of the Covenant. It's not hard to understand why he's now portrayed in the media as a sort of real life modern Indiana Jones with I suppose a little bit of Arthur C. Clarke mixed in. Like many, Gibson became fascinated with the loss of flight MH370. He attended the first anniversary uh, of its disappearance in Kuala Lumpur in 2015. Within days, he was planning how he could help the next of kin and what he could do. He knew physical evidence of the aircraft was critical and sought about finding where debris could end up along coasts and above all, exactly where. The unknown lawyer from Seattle would soon become a full-time MH370 beachcomber. While everyone else was spending hours looking at satellite images on Tomnod and making aircraft shapes out of the clouds and spinning elaborate conspiracy theories, Gibson was packing a few simple belongings and booking flights to the east coast of Africa and its multitude of surrounding islands offshore, like the Maldives, Rodriguez, Madagascar and Mauritius. The breakthrough? July 2015. A local council foreman on the island of Reunion found what would become the first identified piece of debris from Malaysia Airlines flight MH370. Gibson headed out to Reunion and met with Johnny Bigou and finder of the Flapron. He knew there was also value in continuing to search beaches. But where next? After discovering the most likely coasts for MH370 debris with oceanographers, Gibson soon focused on Madagascar and Mozambique as the most likely areas for a positive find. In February 2015, Gibson and some local fishermen found the infamous no-step piece of debris, a part of the vertical stabiliser from flight MH370. Everywhere Gibson travelled, and by alerting locals to be on the lookout for unusual coastal debris, he directed he directly or indirectly found almost a third of the debris pieces linked or formally identified as part of the aircraft. Uh, Cicero's David Griffin referred to the adventurer's finds and exploits as the Gibson effect. Soon there would be more than half a dozen other independent and individual finders not known to Gibson at the time of their actual debris finds. But Blaine Gibson had no concept of the distraction and abuse he was about to undergo after finding his first piece of debris 
and subsequent pieces of the aircraft. The online distraction began, the trolling that soon turned into outright attacks, the late night disturbing phone calls, then it spread to family and friends. Then came the burglary and theft of personal belongings and case files and being taunted by the sending of photographs of him with close friends in public places. He was increasingly concerned about the position he found himself in as a finder, mediator between next of kin and investigative bodies and a liaison to get Debbie back to either Malaysia or Australia and the increasing potential that these threats might quickly turn into something even more sinister. On August 24, 2017, the Honorary Consul from Malaysia to Madagascar was gunned down in an assassin attack days before handing over debris uh, from the Civil Aviation Authority in the country to Malaysia. It is yet to be established whether the assassination had anything to do with the case of MH370 or the Consul's previous business dealings with the wrong people. Gibson had his own suspicions and wasn't taking any further risks with travel. He effectively cut off all media interaction and decided to step back for his own safety. He tries to restrict his communication to platforms that provide encryption and never publicly discloses his movements outside his close circle of friends. Uh, hence uh, the reason why I'm delighted that Blaine Allen Gibson is joining us today. Let's talk to Blaine. Okay, welcome back to uh, Radio Espoil, and I'm delighted to be joined for this episode by our very special guest, Blaine Alan Gibson. Blaine, you're very welcome to Radio Espoil. Well, thank you, and good morning. Good, uh, good. Well, good evening for me. Good morning for you. Good morning uh, for uh, me. <laughs> um, Blaine, just a quick run-in for for uh, our Radio Espoil listeners, as the, as as they all know, we we regularly cover um. Uh, missing uh, Malaysia Airlines flight uh, MH370. You and I have known each other for quite a while now, and we, we've kind of been trying to set up this interview. Um, you've been travelling, I've been doing other bits, but it's kind of like uh, our 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 virus friend COVID-19 has kind of happened and kind of made this this interview because we're kind of all in lockdown in one place. So it was the perfect opportunity, I think, to do it now. Um, How's lockdown working for you? Well, it's working okay for now, but it's pretty difficult because I live out of a suitcase. I travel all over the world, and I have a house out of the country, and I can't go there right now. So it, it's pretty difficult for me because I'm not able to travel, but that's okay. I get by. It's small compared to the problems that other people have with this virus and in life. So Absolutely. I'm getting by. Okay. It's giving me some time to focus on the whole Malaysia 370 thing and do some of these interviews that I've wanted to do for a while. So, Absolutely, yeah. I, I, I kind of, uh, in, in talking to friends, you know, the, 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 the consequence is how you're managing, how you're getting on, you know, you must be crawling the walls. It hasn't been too bad for, well, my wife uh, is working from home now at the moment. As you know, I freelance, so I'm mostly working from home. So. It's kind of like I feel we've had a, a sort of a, a test period of time to get into this, uh, which has made it easier. So it's not quite as a sudden a thing for us. Uh, I suppose many people who've had their lives turned upside down. But however, we are here to talk about um, missing flight uh, Malaysia MH370. Blaine, um, I'm sure anybody who's closely followed the case um, 
will be probably relatively familiar with yourself but just for anybody joining us uh, today um, just just give me a little bit of background I, I've, I've already previous to uh, us uh, um, starting the uh, the interview I've, I've already given um, people a, a gist of your biography but in your own kind of words just just your early life and uh, your upbringing and eventually how it got you to this case well, most of all, I love traveling and solving mysteries, and that's been true all my life. I uh, grew up in a family in California. My father was the chief justice of California. My mother was a lawyer, and uh, I was always interested in traveling. My mother was uh, the chairman of the State Parks Commission in California, so I've also been very interested in environmental issues and politics. But all along, my great love has been travel and adventure. And I had the goal ever since I was seven years old of visiting every country in the world. And I love learning languages. I speak six languages fluently. So that is what has driven me. Travel, adventure, nature, climbing mountains, crossing deserts solving mysteries, learning languages, and different cultures. That's what I love to do. So Malaysia 370 is a mystery that involves a lot of those things. It involves geography, politics, aviation, Maths. oceanography, travel, everything. So it's no wonder that that has attracted me and that I've felt the desire to solve that mystery and learn the truth of what happened, not only for the families to help bring them answers, but for myself, because traveling and loving and solving mysteries is what I love to do. Blaine, as you know, I've been big into covering aviation as a journalist all my life, um, and, and obviously the last six years, particularly the amount of time I've spent uh, looking at this case, but I have to ask you a question that I know a lot of people will want to ask. First of all, they'll their instinct will probably be that is an amazing and fascinating life to have led and to be able to do that. But the question a lot of people will ask is, how can you afford to travel all over the world? And I know you travel light, but you obviously have to self-finance all this. Well, for one thing, that's what I spend my money on. I don't spend my money on fancy cars or fancy houses, uh, things like that. I spend my money on travel. Mm -hmm. And I've been very fortunate in that uh, I inherited from my father and my mother the family home in Carmel, California, which I sold uh, in 2014 for over a million dollars, mm -hmm. so I have that extra money that I can use for the things that I love. So those are just my priorities, but I'm lucky to be well off financially, and I invest intelligently, and I spend carefully on the things that I love doing. So that's how I've been able to do it. Now, obviously, uh, in early life uh, as training uh, as a, uh, a lawyer so 
you've done all this traveling are, are there any countries where you've spent or lived a considerable period of time or have you always been traveling really once that bug hit at, you know at a younger age no there are a lot of countries where i've spent a lot of time there are 195 countries in the world i've now been to 185 of them there's only one country that i have lived in full-time mm -hmm. been a resident of a citizen of and that's the united states okay. of america but there are nine other countries that I have lived in and either worked or studied in part-time. Nine other countries okay. on different continents, in South America, in Europe, in Asia. Uh, one of those is Russia, and a lot has been made about that, that I was in Russia, but I was just living there part-time during about ten years. I was living part-time also in Brazil, in Italy, in France, in Chile at different times. And I speak six languages, English, French, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, and Russian. And those are languages I really speak. I mean, I don't just know a few words here and there. That languages where I just know a few words here and there, it'd be 10 or 20 more. Oh, I guess that helps as well with traveling it's one thing to travel in a country as a tourist but in a sense when you are fluent in the native language of that country you no longer feel necessarily just like a tourist and probably don't get treated necessarily like a tourist that's right and I don't just go to the country take a couple of pictures or now it would be selfies and chalk up the country as mm -hmm. having this I like to actually go there meet people make friends live as a native and see things and fortunately some of my jobs on two occasions i worked in brazil and lived in brazil so i was able to fit in very much as a brazilian and i like that i love that country now mh370 I've, I've touched upon it uh, in the bio piece i read but just in your own words let's go back to the start blaine gibson at the start when was the first thing you heard about this missing flight and the circumstances? I found out about it the same way probably most mm -hmm. people did, most regular people other than those who had loved ones on the plane. I found out about it on CNN and I was in the process of selling the family home. It had been my mother's and my father's and I grew up in it so there were boxes and boxes and boxes of memories to go through from my mother and my father and from me and I was going through them in the uh, music the rec room of the house with the television on and then came the news breaking of Malaysia 370 and I just sat there for days weeks going through these boxes, going through these papers while the television was showing. And I saw the mystery develop from an early one that I just thought was a tragic plane crash that they'd probably find the wreckage within a few hours to one where the plane had vanished and gone into another ocean and into another hemisphere. So I got interested in it, but I was busy selling the house I was uh, busy helping start a business over in Southeast Asia 
And so for the first year, I just followed it, but didn't really get involved. Mm -hmm. Not until, say, in late 2014, I joined uh, some Facebook groups of people that were discussing it. And mm -hmm. So I started to get more informed about it. So I got a very heavy dose of all the news, say, the first month on CNN, and then very little, and then I started to get involved again in the Facebook groups discussing it with and people like you. I tell you, a lot of people familiar with you now, particularly online in those very early groups, probably that's how they, they first came across you and your fascination, your interest with that with that case. Yes. And, and of course, we'll go into further detail shortly uh, about your practical uh, involvement and, and searching. But just if we might, for, for anybody uh, joining us now, um, Brian, if you could just, uh, we don't have to go into too much detail. Like I said, we, we've covered this on a number of uh, uh, previous episodes. But if you could just give us a, a summary of, of where we are now, shall we say, in 2020 with the case of Malaysia MH370. Where we are now, <clears throat> we know a lot more now than we knew five. Mm -hmm six, four years ago. Mm -hmm. But we still don't know enough. We don't know enough to bring answers to the families. We know from the debris, we know from the satellite data mm -hmm. that the plane crashed somewhere in the southern Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. The southern Indian Ocean is a very large place. So we don't know exactly where. We've done these different searches. First, the official search with uh, Australia, Malaysia, and China, Fugro and Geo Phoenix, and then the uh, privately funded by Ocean uh, Infinity, and still didn't find the plane. Uh, we have 32 pieces of debris in the debris report that tell us approximately where the plane crashed but it's again it's a very large area and they tell us that it was tragically a violent crash that shattered the plane aside from two big pieces and the wing flap tells it that it was not a controlled ditching uh, we have found and other private citizens have found pieces of cabin debris that show that the fuselage and cabin are not intact underwater. So we know something of the what happened. We know something of where it happened. But we don't know the who, we don't know the why, we don't know the how. And I think this is one thing that I find that people interested in, in, in aircraft investigations don't always fully grasp in that an investigation and really to 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 an extent really all investigation including a criminal investigation has to establish where what might have happened analyze all the evidence and all that has to come long before we ever get to the who responsibility should it have happened why did you know and, and I find too often we, we tend to put the cart before the horse and 
in a sense of as an invest as an air an air investigation we have barely scratched the surface we have barely started this investigation in in all reality we haven't even got a wreckage site and that's where the real investigation the true investigation actually and that's where you start to move towards what actually happened there are there are too many theories and not enough evidence the underwater searches <clears throat> as dedicated as they were to finding the plane it's a very large area it's very difficult they've yielded nothing I and 15 other private citizens completely unrelated to one another and totally unrelated to me and that's an important point isn't it because too yes. often when we talk about finders it's oh yeah that that guy that that uh, indiana jones guy he found you know and i have to keep emphasizing to people and this is a conversation i think i previously had with don thompson of the ig look there are 15 different finders you know don't just fixate on one finder you know because we start drifting into conspiracy theories as well you know what i think david griffin uh, called the you know the the, the sort of a, the the blaine or the gibson effect uh yes whereas in and reality you sorry go on well and the other 15 finders just random people who were walking on the beach or the shorelines and found it those are the most significant pieces. The flapper on was the first piece found by Johnny Begg, the beach cleaner on Leon Jones. The most significant piece of all, and the one that is very often ignored because it does not fit some of the fashionable controlled ditch ditching theories, the most significant piece is the wing flap, which the, was the found in Tanzania. Island in Tanzania by fishermen. And the reason that is significant is that it was studied by the ATSB, NTSB, and Boeing, and determined to have been in a retracted position, not a deployed position, as it would be during a landing or controlled ditching. That's very significant. And that piece is very often overlooked. And then the other 13 pieces, uh, you know, there are three that have been totally confirmed by the numbers matching and then others that are found to be different gradients of almost certainly highly likely from the plane include cabin debris piece of the tail the landing gear door is one of the ones that the person found and brought to me they're from all over the plane front to back so inside to outside me and 15 other private citizens. It's not just me. And of the ones that I am credited with finding, it's like 17 of them in the debris report are the ones that I handed in. Mm -hmm. Only six of those were found by me or someone with me, where we yeah. were together and, and either my friend picked it up first or I did. Mm -hmm. The other... 11 of those were brought to me by local people. I'd show samples, I'd show pictures, I and my friends would put the word out, and the local people had found them, maybe picked them up and used them for something, or maybe they heard about my interest in it and the family's interest in it, 
And so they brought them to me and to my friends. So they were really found by other people in Madagascar. So I get really more credit than I deserve. It's a blessing and a curse. But the truth is, there are 15 other private citizens who found very important pieces of the plane. And then there's a lot of volunteers who are looking at satellite photos, trying to find the plane, the independent group guys who are uh, giving their time and their expertise to simply plot where the plane might be. And this is a search that's not just the official search looking underwater. These are a whole army of people who are doing what they can, either in front of a computer or using math or me walking on the beaches or local keep people keeping their eyes out, who are dedicated to finding an answer to this. Blaine, early on in this investigation, uh, we'll try and quickly move through it, uh, March 2014, um, the consensus from the authorities in Malaysia was there was a turn back. The turn back appears to be deliberate. And for me as a journalist, but more so as an aviation journalist, I felt that people wrongly seized upon those official words and construed in their minds something different that was than was necessarily intended. And what I mean by that is, well, that obviously means the pilot must have deliberately turned the plane around. Now, why would he do that? But of course, as we know, there's many reasons why a plane diverts. Every day, 3,000 aircraft in the world, several of those are diverting, diverting back to the airport oh. for, for various reasons, minor reasons, medical reasons, um, perhaps more serious uh, technical reasons but these things happen but I felt there was too much construed into those official words now whether the Malaysian authorities intended a little bit of you know play with those words or whether they were just simply acting at well look that's clearly what happened the plane deliberately turned around we don't know why but it deliberately turned around but I felt too much was associated with that as the plane turned at, at waypoint of Gary and headed uh, across uh, the Malaysia Peninsula towards um, towards Penang. Just in general, do you have thoughts on that? Well, that turn itself could have been for a number of reasons. It could have been because of some mechanical or fire emergency. It could have been because the plane was being hijacked, taken mm -hmm. either by the flight crew or by the captain, or by some third party. The question is not as much what happened there, because that could be open to a lot of different interpretations, but what happened afterwards. Mm -hmm. And I at first thought, way back, early on, and I've never really had a theory, but if I ever had a theory, it was in the very early days, I thought that the plane had some sort of emergency and turned back and just kept on flying as a ghost plane, didn't manage to land, and wound up over the Maldives. 
where there was a witness sighting of a large low-flying jet plane. That was my original thought way back mm-hmm. in, like, March, April of 2014. And, uh, well, as, I, as you rightly said a few moments ago, what we knew back in 2014 and 2015 is different to necessarily what we know now. Exactly. And and actually, I wound up, well, not only did the Inmarsat data refute that and show that the plane went down to the southern Indian Ocean, but way back in those days, I didn't really understand the Inmarsat data. And so I was thinking, okay, I'll, I'll start, I'll look at other things, other possibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, when I got involved in it, and when I went to the Maldives, in uh, I believe it was May of 2015 and talked to the witnesses I wound up disproving that theory myself because the plane did not come from the northeast the plane came from the northwest and the Maldives plane turned and went south so it obviously wasn't a ghost plane going to the Maldives the satellite data put it in the southern Indian Ocean that required two more turns, one that was captured by the uh, radar, Mm -hmm. and then another turn after it disappeared from radar to head south. So that turns away from an accident and and towards a deliberate act. And notwithstanding that when we analyze fuel models, we can just about come up with a fuel model that might get it to the Maldives but the problem is not really much further than the Maldives so the next obvious question is if the Immersat data is wrong then where's the plane it should be somewhere close to the coast of the Maldives it's maybe just off south of the Maldives we've heard some crazy theories about it flying on to uh, Diego Garcia we've had crazy theories about it landing in the Maldives Totally crazy, and I, never, and I never believed any of those. I considered the Maldives witnesses to be credible. Absolutely. I was open to the possibility that that is where the plane wound up. I've since then, since those early days, been convinced that the Inmarsat data is correct and that the plane wound up in the southern Indian Ocean near the search area. And one of the reasons for that is the debris, because... If the plane had crashed near the Maldives, there would be debris in the Maldives. And we've been such an intensive fishing area as well. Yes. And there were reports of debris in the Maldives, but they turned out not to be aviation debris. I checked those out myself. They weren't aviation debris except for one piece, which turned out to be part of a U.S. drone that had probably floated there from over near Yemen, the pirate area in Somalia. So it it became pretty clear to me that while I believed the Maldives witnesses were credible, one, this was not a ghost plane at all, no matter where it wound up. It wasn't a ghost plane, at least for those two turns subsequent to the Igari one. Uh, But that the Maldives witnesses had seen something, and it was not a turboprop-8 plane. That came out as one. Planned initially, yeah. Yeah, and, and that came out as one theory to explain away the Maldives sighting, and that that published flight record was inaccurate. That flight flew 
a different way and on that day the Dash 8s were flying after that sighting and didn't go near Kudahuvadu. So I always kept the Maldives sighting in mind as something that we needed to explain but over the years I've become more convinced that the plane is in the southern Indian Ocean because and I mean near the uh, 1,500 miles off the coast of Australia, near the search area, because also the timing of the arrival of the debris mm-hmm. fits better with the seventh arc than it does with the with the Maldives. Well, now we don't considerably the, better. Yeah, considerably better. We don't know when the debris arrived. We just know when it was found. But it's pretty clear to me that the flapperon was found at about the time that it arrived. But there is some new information regarding the Maldives that I can reveal right here because I got permission from the person who is doing the research to reveal it right here on your show. Well, there you go. And that, that Don Thompson from the Independent Group has identified a private Boeing triple seven that landed at Malay Airport the morning of March eight, twenty fourteen. The landing time is consistent with the Kudahuvadu sighting mm-hmm. being after it, and with a flight over the western atolls. He's identified that plane, he's working with the airport airline officials in the Maldives and is now trying to get information from the owner of that plane about what time it took off, where it took off, and if it would have had any reason or opportunity or time to be flying over Kudahuvadu Low in the southwest Maldives. And he's awaiting those answers. So I don't want to go into much more about that because that's rather sensitive. Sure. But this is a credible investigation. It's not like some of the crazy ways that they use to dismiss that sighting by saying that either the people were lying or the people saw a dash eight or something like that. This is a credible investigation, and it may produce an answer. Because I'll just th- those eyewitnesses, in fairness, as, as I suppose, any eyewitnesses, whether you're a sailor in the middle of the Indian Ocean, whether you're someone on the peninsula of Malaysia who spotted something that night, whether you're eyewitnesses in uh, the Maldives, I appreciate all these eyewitnesses deserve at least some kind of explanation or answer as to, well, if we didn't spot MH370, then what did we spot? So I can understand the frustration of that. Because otherwise those people feel like everybody's just going to think we're lying. That you know, we're just making this up, uh, and that's been and the problem for so many of the eyewitnesses and what's been unfairly yes. written about them and dismissed. And I've always known they were highly credible. I always knew they were not making it up. I knew that different evidence pointed away from that being Malaysia 370, the Inmarsat data, and so on, the debris, the drift analysis, the fact that nobody had seen a plane crash there. And I think that we may be getting close to the explanation of what that plane was. 
they did see a large low-flying jet plane. And I'll say this much, because a lot of people know that I've always believed and spoken up for these witnesses, even though I've never adopted any of those crazy theories that, that the plane went there, or to Diego Garcia. The fact that there was a private Boeing 777 with no public flight record in the Maldives at that time makes it more likely that that is the plane they saw instead of Malaysia 370, which the satellite and all the evidence put somewhere else. It's more likely this plane. It'll be very good when we get the information on when it took off from where and how it flew and why it might have been cruising some of these those atolls at low altitude. It would just be speculation. But I think it's more likely that is the plane they saw than Malaysia 370. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. And privately, I've also been talking with Don as well uh, about this. And as I said, he's busy trying to get more exact details um, on it. But I think one thing I did quickly learn about the Maldives at that time there were actually a lot of uh, non-official flights that was chartered and private flights at that time, in and out, yes. over a, a lengthy period of, of actually I think six to eight weeks, from royal families, uh, cargo aircraft going in there, private wealthy That's citizens right. flying in there. There were, there were many, many uh, flights at the time. And they don't like publicity and there's no public record of those. It was hard enough for me to get the official record of the Dash 8 flights from the Maldives. I couldn't even touch the uh, private ones and my hat's off to Don because this is not an effort just to dismiss it to dismiss its sake. This is a serious effort to identify what that plane was. And if I might clarify as well, the other, and going back to the validity of witnesses as well, and I think a lot of people will say, well, well, why can't the official investigation uh, deal with this? And I have to keep emphasizing to people, the official investigation believes strongly where they believe the aircraft is, and that is the Southern Indian Ocean. And they are yes. convinced that that's where it is. And what one has to understand is, as in any event, and I remember talking to somebody from the ATSB as well about you know dealing with all these theories and all these chasing up all these avenues that, that people would report to them. There's only so much resource investigation teams can do. It 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 ultimately isn't the role of the the Annex 13 or the original Annex 13 team to investigate what aircraft was over in the Maldives, or what aircraft was seen by in Somalia or Sri Lanka, or in, it isn't no, their role when they have evidence that clearly points. And so consequently, when people contact them, whether they phone them or email them and say, look, I have this theory, I've seen this, what do you think? And it's it's similar, I suppose, with the oil rig worker. Um, like, like, ultimately, all they can say is, look, the best evidence we have discounts the area that you witnessed possibly an aircraft nobody's saying you didn't see an aircraft we just don't believe you saw the aircraft you may think you believe because the most important thing as well is that I'm less so now but obviously back then um, 
you don't want to dismiss any potential credible line. That's right. But it has to, it it has to be of merit and fit, and be corroborated with other, not just data, but but other evidence, practical scientific evidence. That's why I decided that when I started, I always considered that the Southern Indian Ocean in the official version was the correct one. I considered that. However, I wanted to look at other things as well, and I investigated objectively, and I never had an agenda. I never had a theory that I would adhere to in spite of the evidence. So whenever I saw evidence that would refute a theory, I'm willing to say, okay, well, that theory was wrong. That idea was wrong. This was something else. Let's focus on where the plane is. I'm, I'm after the truth, whatever it is. And, and that means the truth about where the plane crashed, how it crashed, who was flying it. Whatever the truth is, I want it. And I think that's where the families are. They want the truth, whatever it is. And there are some different people out there who've got different agendas. They're like, they want to prove this theory, that the plane is there, that these people took the plane, and they'll simply get blindsided and ignore any evidence mm -hmm. that refutes their theory. There's a lot of those people out there, Absolutely. and that's fine. They're entitled to that. What bothers me is when they cross the line and start to viciously attack and defame anyone, whether it's a private citizen or an, an official, who produces evidence that refutes their theory. Mm -hmm. That is not acceptable. Blaine, in the early days, I, I can't remember who it was, somebody, and I, I hate people asking me to put a figure on it, a percentage on it, but I suppose in the first two years, I was probably strongly of the opinion that maybe 60-70% of all the research I've done pointed me in the direction that this could just quite as easily have been a mechanical technical problem with the aircraft. I have to say, probably like a lot of us, I've shifted position and I will go at least as far as saying I think there's a strong chance now, probably that same 60 or 70% that something nefarious happened. I don't know exactly what it was, but I have found myself over the past few years, particularly the last two or three years, increasingly, the more I understand aviation systems, air traffic control, increasingly reaching a dead end every time I go down a technical explanation for this which leads me more and more down the road that something nefarious has happened here this this isn't just a mechanical failure and if it is the likelihood is it is a and I don't entirely dismiss it probably that 30% 40% I don't entirely dismiss it but that it is a technical event or series of compounding events that we may never have seen the like of before on a triple seven, if that is the case. 
just your thoughts around that I think I'm with you I was much more open to the fire electrical emergency attempted landing theory uh, early on uh, than I am now uh, and I think now uh, I'd put the number even higher than you at 60, 70. I'd put the number up around 90 mm -hmm. that this plane was deliberately taken. Not certain by who, not certain why. I'd like more information before I'd make any theories on that, but that it was deliberately taken. And the reason is subsequent evidence that has happened. And let me outline what that is. Please do. First of all, the debris of the 17 pieces of debris that I found that are in the debris report, there was only one, and it was actually two. It's, it's lumped together as one debris, even though it was two pieces. There was only one that was burned. And when I found that, since it was clearly debris from somewhere in the interior cabin, um, or perhaps one of the bays, I thought, wow, this may be it, because this was burned. Well, the media made a bigger deal out of it than I wanted to. I revealed the fact that it was burned and that this may be significant, but let's investigate and see. Well, Australia investigated it very quickly, and they determined that it was burned, but that the burning occurred after the crash, probably after it washed ashore. You, well, I, I, you, you, I originally... You, you and I, I think, had a, a brief a brief falling out, uh, I think, over that when I said... I think I remember one morning, well, morning, evening, I'm trying to think when it was for me, uh, probably very early morning, and I remember you were handing over pieces, uh, I think it must have been in Canberra, and I remember you saying that, that you know, you had a strong feeling that the smell of it, that, that possibly there was charring on it or burning on it. And I remember saying to you, you know, is this really wise to be saying, Blaine? Because it'll give people ideas, you know, on to let, let them test it and let them verify it. So just continue with that, what, what the ATSB then found. Well, what they found, and I think you're right. I mean, I said I said this was possible. I think they exaggerated yeah. that. I should been I should have been more careful in my learning in my wording. That's those are just the things that you learn when you're dealing with the with the press and so on. That I should have been more reserved in my words. Um, what I noticed about it was that it was not burned around the edges, and I thought this was a fisherman's fire because when anything washes ashore, the fishermen use it to start fires. It wasn't burned around the edges, so I thought that the burning may have occurred before, but uh, ATSB investigated that very quickly, mm -hmm. and they determined that the black sort of melted material on it uh, was... They described it as a resin or something. As a resin or lacquer that was, a, yeah. that was applied, and uh, that the burning smell they believed came from after it had washed ashore. Mm -hmm. Which would be very possible because, I mean, I had not found these pieces. They'd been found washed ashore by local people and brought to me, and they were, I think, found washed ashore about six months before I got my hand on them. So anything could have happened to it. 
And ATSB concluded that the burning happened after it had washed ashore. There was going to be a further investigation of those pieces by Malaysia. It was two pieces, one in the debris report. And uh, I don't think that investigation was ever published or forthcoming. I think they just relied on the ATSB one. But I'm satisfied with that. And the fact is that none of the other pieces that I've found were burned. Only that one piece. So that, to me, tends to... The debris itself tends to turn away from the fire theory. Fire theory, yeah. Yeah, and... and n not, notwithstanding that, generally, of all the aircraft fires we've had, and, and I'm thinking that one of the most catastrophic incidents was Swiss Air 111. Yeah. Um, generally, if a, if a serious fire takes hold of an aircraft, that's that's pretty much end game. That's the the aircraft doesn't. It's end game. Under. It's not going to fly on for another seven and a half hours. It, it's not going to do it. the The other thing that makes me believe that this was a deliberate act, that this was not just some accident, is recent analysis that came out, and it was done by independent group and it was of some uh, civilian radar data that had not been previously available. That's right, yeah. And an analysis of that from the shadows of where you could see the plane and where you couldn't, they could calculate, because they're math wizards and I'm not, they could calculate the speed and altitude of the plane. And what that showed was that the plane, after Igari, after that big turn back, it went up, it caught a tailwind, it flew very fast across the Malay Peninsula, it did not descend to attempt a landing at Penang, at Penang or Langkawi. It instead made another turn, staying at high altitude, all the way up to where it disappeared from radar at the mouth of the Straits of Malacca. So that, to me, goes against the emergency attempted landing. I had always thought, well, maybe it turned around, there was an emergency, they were trying to land at uh, Penang for whatever reason they failed, maybe overcome by fumes or, or maybe plugged in the wrong coordinates or something. But no, the plane didn't go down. So that, to me, it turned away from the fire electrical accident theory and made it appear that the plane went up to catch a tailwind, flew right across the border to get the hell out of Dodge as fast as they could. That's what it looked like. And that's subsequent information. Uh, the other theories that the thing was shot down, none of the debris has had any shrapnel in it. You'd have shrapnel if the plane were shot down. And it would be in bigger chunks. So I don't, I don't buy that one either. I think we're looking at a deliberate act. The question is, by whom, why, what it meant. But three deliberate major turns are not something that a ghost plane is going to just do. 
someone was flying that plane. Now, I know there's some theories out there, oh, it could have been adjusting to the weather and the wind and this and that, blah, blah, blah. But I just don't buy it. No, Three, I, I, I can, deal, I can deal with one distinct turn, perhaps, yeah. of pilots reaching the end of capacitation, physical capacitation and, and maybe one last desperate turn, uh, whether to get the plane away from a uh, highly populated yeah. area. I, I can deal with the, should we say, the second major turn. I can deal with the first yeah. Gary turn. I can deal mm -hmm. even with the second. It's that third turn. It's that third one. Just yeah. blows everything out. That that's that, that is more than just a 180 degree. That's just complete. You know that wind doesn't do that. Turbulence doesn't no. do that. And, no. And then to fly so well, we're still not quite sure of the path uh, south, but predominantly to effectively fly directly south is just you know the the plane would have continued then to meander left right. Yeah, and eventually probably have come down, but again, it just doesn't yeah. make sense to fly for another whatever it was then, another five, four and a half, five hours. Yeah, um, I know. Blaine, I, I suppose we, we we have to talk about the the delicate theory. We've we've heard this phrase thrown around. It, it's it's probably up there as the number one theory. Pilot suicide. Um, tell us what we know of Captain Zahari, and. Does he fit into that category of captains, pilots, in the way we've seen with previous? Because thank God, this is such a, such an event is such a rare thing—a a pilot suicide. I think we've had maybe seven uh, cases previously. Does this fit with that pattern? The short answer is no. It does not. The reality is that there is nothing in his background, personal or psychological, that indicates that he would do something like this. With the German wings suicide, the guy was depressed, that was in the medical records, his girlfriend, people who knew him talked about it. Easy explanation. Silk Air, I actually met a pilot who knew and worked with the Silk Air pilot, and they considered him to be very re reckless and unpredictable, and he just lost millions of dollars on day yeah. trade. Fully understandable. Uh, a similar thing with, uh, with the Lam, Eastern. Lam Air, I think. Uh, well, was also Lam Air, and, and interestingly enough, when I handed over No Step to the head of civil aviation in Mozambique, he was working on that LAM Air investigation. It hadn't been finalized yet. And and there were things in that pilot's background that, that made this believable. Uh, I think he had a number Nothing. of horrific tragedies in his life with, with yeah. his death and, and, and uh, cancer and... Mm -hmm. And absolutely nothing like that with Zahari. The, the main evidence against Zahari would be this simulated flight which wound up somewhere around the search area in the southern Indian Ocean. Um, I at first downplayed that. Um, the IG guys put much more significance on it than I did at first. Uh, I think it's something that's worth pursuing and uh, may very well give us the answer. It was suspicious that that occurred and that 
that was simulated in February. However, it was just one of a large number of flights on that simulator. So to me, it's not conclusive, but it's evidence that uh, is not good and needs to be investigated. Well, However... The other major trains of, of argument with the captain is uh, the sense of political activism, which I, to a certain degree, you know, I think both of us are very familiar uh, with social media now. And I just feel that that aspect has been blown completely out of all proportion. I think it's been blown ridiculously out of proportion. I mean, when a, a lot of airline pilots in the United States are Republicans, and when Obama was elected, they didn't go diving their planes into the ocean. When Trump was elected, the Democrats didn't go diving their planes into the ocean. It's just ridiculous. There's nothing to indicate that. That is something that maybe some people legitimately believe it, or maybe some people are just trying to find some sort of answer or explanation and making it up. But I... I've never bought into that one uh, as being a reason. Uh, why would you go out and uh, kill 238 innocent people because you're upset at, at you know who the prime minister is? I don't I don't buy it. Uh, I also don't buy the thing about maybe there was the girlfriend or he was after the models. That that to me it's. That, to me, is not indicative of someone who wants to kill himself and everybody else. That, to me, is indicative of an older guy who wants to live. So I, I, don't, I don't buy into any of those at all. If there were some political motivation, if it was Zahari who took his own plane, from... Looking at his background, I'd have trouble believing it, but I surely wouldn't believe that it was a murder-suicide. I would think that, I mean, if he did take it, that there was some other reason he was doing it and maybe things went wrong. I don't know, but I would be, I would be very reluctant to jump to the why without more information. Obviously, he was the last person known to be in control of the plane. He had the capacity to do what was done, even though we see no motivation. He obviously is a suspect and needs to be investigated because he, was, he had the opportunity to do that if he wanted to could have locked the co-pilot out. Uh, but I just, I am not convinced. I think that early on, they jumped to conclusions that it was the pilot in a murder-suicide. It was an easy answer. His life was put under a microscope. They couldn't come up with any explanation for his doing that. Uh, I do think that the final report in Malaysia, while he may have been prematurely tried and convicted in the press, I do think that the final report in Malaysia kind of jumped to the conclusion of a third party hijacking uh, more than they should have, went out of their way to clear him, 
more than they should have. I think they should have left that more as a question mark, which it is, because we really don't know, and we're probably not going to know until we find the main crash site. I, I just urge people to keep an open mind on him, to not try convict and condemn him. Mm -hmm. Look at the angles where he may have done it. See if you can find the plane there. See if this route that uh, Victor and Bobby Ulich's analysis produces something. And hold off on conclusions until then. It is possible he would be a lead suspect. But again, nothing in his background to indicate that he would do this. Nothing gives us the why. So let's hold off on judgment and just try to find the plane. And, Blaine, I, I, I suppose the next step, the next logical step we should discuss now is, having dealt with where we are, and we, we, we've sort of reflected back on the case, I suppose it's important now that we look beyond where we are now. Um, one of the biggest and most important words you and I, in our many discussions, have had over the years is, consensus and if there's to be another search there has to be a consensus within the people producing data reports and trying to convince the Malaysian authorities to start a third official search and without that consensus if there isn't consensus within the parties presenting that information then there's little or no hope that the Malaysian authorities will agree to it. That's right. There, there needs to be a consensus, and the Malaysians want to see some new evidence. I would hope that they'd be willing to go with some new analysis of existing evidence uh, to restart the search. But what's really needed is for Ocean Infinity, which mm -hmm. assumed endless risk by doing that last search. They wound up spending a lot of money. They didn't find the plane. Is there a new analysis uh, of where the plane might be that makes them feel it's worth their while to put up that money and take the risk of looking for the plane? And that can be an analysis of the data that they already collected, that they and Phoenix, Phoenix and Fugro already collected in the targeted area to see if they might have missed something. Or if there were some areas that were searched that should have been searched. Because in some of those areas the terrain is incredibly challenging. Yes, it is. And, and if, if Murphy's Law does rule. Everything with Malaysia 370 has gone so wrong, so tragically wrong, that if Murphy's Law does rule, the plane is probably way down deep in some crevasse, tragically. It may not be easy to find. So if there are some areas that are possible that have not been searched, they should be searched. It may be worth it for Ocean Infinity to go back over some of the areas 
where Fugro and Phoenix might have missed it, and it may be worth it for them to go over any areas that they think are worth a second look. The area that Victor and Bobby pointed to... This is around 34 degrees, isn't it? Around 34 degrees south latitude. That is consistent with the debris. That is possible. Dr. Cherry Patirachi would say it more likely around 32 degrees south latitude, but we're close. Mm -hmm. See, what the debris tells us, and this is why the debris is so important, all of the pieces were sound, found on the African side, and none on the Australian, New Zealand, Tasmania side. That's in spite of the fact that there's a guy who searches the coast of Australia much more thoroughly than I have searched in the coast of Africa. He's found nothing. There have been alerts for beach cleaning parties in South Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, alerting them for any possible aircraft debris. They do clean beaches there. Nothing has been found. There was one piece of debris found on Kangaroo Island that turned out to be from a smaller plane. I'm not sure what it was. It was aviation, but it wasn't mm -hmm. 3-7. The west coast of Australia, pretty much clean. Because of the Lewin Current, not much washes ashore there at all. But if it were south of, say, 36 degrees, if the crash site were south of 36 degrees, south of Cape Lewin, You'd have debris going east and west. And when you get down to 39 or 40, most of it's going to go east. Mm -hmm. And yet none of it went east. All of it went west. So that tells us it's farther north. So the 34 degrees that they have pinpointed is possible. 32 degrees, that's more likely with Cherry's analysis. Why not check them both out and check out Broken Ridge because that has a lot of terrain where you could easily miss it. But that's up to Ocean Infinity to decide. I would hope that if Ocean Infinity is willing to do it at their own risk, that Malaysia would happily sign the contract. They've got nothing to lose. If the plane is not found, they don't pay anything. So I would hope that if Ocean Infinity comes forth with a proposal to search, that Malaysia will simply sign it and move forward that well just to finish up on that uh, that aspect of the coastal debris be it uh, South Australia West Australia um, East African coast um, I, I felt that once we got to the four or five year mark the likelihood of coastal debris finds was getting less and less absolutely now now granted i think it was around the four to five year mark there was some discussion of the circumnavigation that potentially if debris had went west passed down the coast right down to southern africa it could circumnavigate right back around and, and there was some possibility that it could wash back ashore uh, in South Australia. 
Now, as you say, we've not seen any indications of that. And I suppose this brings me to my next question re regarding yourself and your input uh, in this case. Um, are we at a point where the concentration now needs to be on an active deep sea search rather than spending more time searching coastal areas? In other words, what more are we going to find at this stage? Yes, absolutely. We need to go underwater. Uh, we need to renew the search there. The possibility of surfing navigation, mm -hmm. I actually brought that up. I was filmed on a beach in West Australia talking about be on the lookout. It yeah, could circle yeah. back around. People were on the lookout. Nothing came back. Mm -hmm. Nothing was found in South Australia. Uh, the most recent piece of debris to actually be found washed ashore by local people was in Madagascar in August of 2018. 18. And this is debris that I and the families handed in mm -hmm. to Minister Oak November 30, like the last day for the Annex 13 mm -hmm. report. Uh, also included in that was the floor panel which had washed ashore earlier mm -hmm. than that uh, way back in late 2016 when it washed ashore there but the, the November the, the August of 2018 piece probably did not circumnavigate and go all the way back yeah. I, I believe that Madagascar and Mozambique are acting sort of as a backstop. Mm -hmm. I think the debris arrives there, and it washes ashore, it gets buried in sand, it washes back out, it washes in, it kind of sticks around there. And the reason that I believe that, and I discussed this with Liam Lauder about the first two pieces mm -hmm. of the quantity of sand in all of the debris but especially like the debris that has the uh, pancake sandwich-like honeycomb, mm -hmm. the quantity of sand is enormous in no step in the fairing that Liam Lauder found. I believe that that debris had arrived there before I found it, before he found it, was buried in sand, because that's the only way you'd get that much sand in there. A lot of the pieces of debris I've found have lots of sand in them. When I saw No Step two years later in Malaysia, they let me see it and hold it, sand was still falling out of it. So I think that the debris sticks around there. We know when I and others found it, but we don't know when it arrived. And this also explains, there's been a lot of talk about the barnacles. Well, one of the pieces of debris that I found, the monitor case, had barnacles on it. The reason was that it just washed ashore. Because the barnacles will they, come off very quickly once they dry out. They come off very quickly. The, you walk along the beach in Madagascar, and most of the debris that you see, flotsam, jetsam, buoys, whatever it is, boat parts, 
have no barnacles on it at all because it's been baked in the sun, mm -hmm. blasted in the wind, buried in the sand, no barnacles at all. And that's true of the airplane debris, too. The monitor case had barnacles on it, probably because it just washed ashore, and the others didn't. But they had traces where barnacles had been. They had microscopic marine life on it and traces of other marine life on them. So too much has been made about the barnacles because the fact is that most of the debris you find on those beaches, Riake and Ansiraka, don't have barnacles on them unless you catch them as they're just washing the shore. I found, the last time I was there, I found a perfume bottle. It had lots of beautiful barnacles on it. I took a picture of it. I held on to the perfume bottle, and after just a few days, the barnacles had dried and fallen off. And a perfect example so, of that is the piece, I'm not sure exactly where it was found, but the piece we, we often refer to as Roy, or the... Uh, Yes. with the Rolls Royce emblem. We know yeah. that that piece broke land and was on the shore for a period of time because it was photographed by a beach walker who didn't pick it up yeah. at the time. Mm -hmm. um, a number of kilometers away, three weeks later, that same piece, this time, absolutely no barnacles on it, cleared of barnacles from the first picture we saw of it. Yes, and it was in fact three months later. Yeah. It washed ashore in about the same place, but it was totally picked clean of barnacles. Which is a so perfect example that, that debris is washing ashore, getting pulled back out, getting pushed back in ashore, you know, over lengthy periods of time. The people who make a big deal out of the absence of barnacles as part of some big conspiracy theory, it's because they spend too much time sitting in their armchair mm -hmm. thinking about this stuff instead of actually walking on the beach. Just go walking on the beach, Madagascar, Mozambique, Mauritius, wherever. You'll find that most of the debris you find, whatever it's from, don't have barnacles on them because they've been baked off, picked by birds, blasted by sand, blasted by wind. It's, it's that simple. Too much has been made out of the barnacles. I wish we could learn more from the barnacles, but you really can't. I know, now the flat, I, I know there has been studies, but there's nothing really... Yeah. I mean, as people have talked about different species of uh, barnacles, temperatures. But unless you really know where the debris moved from south further north and understand the temperatures of the, the sea and what, what occurred to that piece during its time... It's it's very difficult to draw any major conclusions. I think from the the effect of the, the life forms on the pieces. No, just general ones, yeah. and and a very large area. I mean, the debris could come from a very large area in the southern Indian Ocean. The Inmarsat data narrows it down. The barnacles don't narrow it down that much from that huge area. You've still got, even when you put like a Venn diagram, the Inmarsat data and the, uh, and the debris and the drift analysis, you've got a huge area to search. Uh, Brian, I, I suppose the, the, the next question I would ask is, um, I guess the 
change of government in Malaysia do you believe that's a positive thing or a negative thing in relation to this investigation and, and the possibility of another search I hoped when the first change because there have been two changes in government since 370 went sure, yeah. I hope that the first change from uh, Najib and Hishamuddin to Mahathir mm -hmm. and Anwar, I hope that that change would make a difference. I didn't see any perceptible difference at all. Of course, most of the investigation had been done. Annex 13 was about ready to close. But I didn't notice any increased dedication mm -hmm. by the new government to finding the plane uh, from when the old government was there. I didn't notice any difference. The, the engineers, the uh, people, civil aviation, those guys, they were trying to find the plane. They may have made some mistakes. They definitely made terrible mistakes in how they handled the families. It was very bad, and you need to talk with the families about that. But they were trying to find the plane. I think they were doing their best. They made mistakes, but they were trying to find it. Uh, I'm talking at the level of the engineers and the head of civil aviation and ministers of transport. I didn't notice any difference from one government to the other, except the passage of time. Uh, now there's been a third change, and I don't really understand it all that well, but uh, what that third change is doing is just sort of creating some confusion. Um, I, I do know this, and, and I hope that people who are watching this will listen to it, I went to a great effort in Madagascar in the summer of 2019 to get those two pieces of debris that we'd handed over in 2017. That was being held as part of the criminal investigation. Exactly. I went to some effort to get those released and delivered to Malaysia. They were delivered to Malaysia. Malaysia was, was quite cooperative and paid for the shipment. They arranged the shipment, and that was fine. They got there in September of 2019, but still, nothing at all published on those two pieces of debris. I understand that they've not yet done the investigation. One of them is important. This is the vortex generator. It's the vortex generator, and it's important because it's been identified by photos by, you know, the independent group people mm -hmm. and some others as being the base plate of the vortex generator, which is part of the engine casing, which normally does not separate. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's indicative of a shattering of the engine casing, and by doing a very serious stress analysis, they might learn something about how fast and at what angle the plane impacted the water, and that could be useful to show what the descent was like of the plane when it crashed. I'd like to see a real investigation of that. At the six-year anniversary, it was on display. Mm -hmm. People saw So they put it there. They've yeah. got it know about it but they still have not done an investigation. Oh yeah, where's your analysis? Yeah, I'd like I'd like to see it. It would be very interesting. I remember um calling um 
Andrew Loke's office sent one email because I found his private email uh, I sent uh, an email to his work email uh, and over a period of about a week uh, I waited for a response and got absolutely zero response not even an acknowledgement of thank you we've received your email uh, well and now he's not even the transport uh, uh, of course he's not the transport minister because, now because there's been another change of government yeah yeah some other things that, that I'd like to talk about, and I suppose it's something you might ask me anyhow, but it's a good time. Things that Malaysia should do now. Things I'd like to see Malaysia Please do now. Looking forward in a and, positive way. And, well, one is the analysis of the vortex generator. I'd like to see that. Mm -hmm. Number two is they need to release the raw military data. data. Absolutely. There is no reason the country's not at war. It's, it's one night. Six years ago, there's no reason that they need to hold on to that for national security reasons. Give me a break. If they release that raw military radar data, then these math whiz guys like the independent group and others who may have some different views can analyze the raw data and come up with how fast they thought the plane was flying, where it was flying, was it being flown, autopilot or what. There's a lot we could learn from that maybe even learn something about where it may have made that that final turn. They need to release the raw military radar data. That would be very valuable. It could provide new evidence that helps us tell what happened to the plane. And a third thing is, I found back in 2016 on Riake Beach and on Siraka Beach where debris came from, where, where known Malaysia 370 debris came from, a large quantity of cabin-sized handbags. They were all empty, except one had some headphones in it. There was nothing to tie them to the plane. No passports, no credit cards, no baggage tags, nothing like that. However, they were found in a large concentration on two beaches that produced Malaysia 370 debris. We had a group of volunteers, you know, people from the Facebook group mm -hmm. and Air Support Group Australia, which is SHARE in, in Australia, looking at the, the, the personal effects itself, because on some occasions I handed them over, to them directly before giving them to Malaysia, matching them with the CCTV video, which we obtained from family members, showing the passengers getting on the plane. Yes, I've seen the whole CCTV video. Some of the items that I'd found on the beach resembled items that were being carried on the plane. The, all of the personal effects on the beach, there's no local pollution there. It's all washed in from the open ocean. Yeah. And by the way, there's so much plastic there, I realize how much plastic is Our destroying us. Yeah. yeah, I'm sifting through plastic all the time. Some of them were matches. For example, there was a green and yellow bag with Chinese writing on it that turned out to be the emblem of a travel agency 
ironically, in, in Hubei province in mm-hmm. China, uh, that had sold some tickets on the plane. So it's a bit of a coincidence that items like that, and there was a Japan Airlines first-class slipper that I found, it's quite a coincidence that those cabin size items, which have no local origin all, wound up on two beaches that had produced Malaysia 370 debris. Because in, gen- in general, people can be irresponsible and throw rubbish in the sea, whether it's off boats, whether it's uh, yes. off the coast. But generally, people do not throw suitcases uh, into the water. People do not no. throw things like uh, slippers or items that you would wear on an aircraft on a long flight. Exactly, and they're not something that a fisherman would have. For example, there was a there was a laptop computer case mm-hmm. that looked similar to some of the laptop computer cases that were being carried on the plane. You can imagine how my heart was pounding when I reached through the little pockets there to see if I pulled out a USB or a chip yeah. or something like that, but, but there was nothing. So this was worth working into. Some of them I handed into aircraft support group in Australia, and then they handed them over to Jack, who supposedly handed them to Malaysia. Some I handed in in Madagascar, and they were transported to Malaysia. And some I brought directly to Malaysia myself, handed them over to the Royal Malaysia Police, because the Royal Malaysia Police are the ones that are in charge of any personal effects. And I think Sharon well, I got from a, the aircraft support group as well had produced an entire catalog, a physical catalog of photographs, yeah. and handed that to the former transport minister as well. She did. That's right, and she posted them on the uh, ASGA website. So they got all those. I got a receipt for the ones I brought them directly. There was a very young officer who was very dedicated to it. He filled out the forms. I've got those. Never, never heard anything in the full or final or whatever it is report about those personal effects. No, we've heard no, absolutely not, no feedback whatsoever. Not even a sentence saying we investigated them and cannot tie them to plane. Yeah. Not even a reference to them. And despite inquiries, we've heard nothing. There was a bag that Johnny Begg found at the time he found the flapper on in relaying. La Réunion that looked like a bag that was being carried on the plane. We've heard, despite inquiries, nothing of that. That obviously went to France. The others that I found went to Malaysia. So we've heard nothing at all on these personal effects. And it would be nice to hear something. If any personal effect were confirmed to be from Malaysia 370, if it could be, that would be very significant in the drift analysis because it would tend to move the crash site closer to where it washed ashore. They shouldn't arrive there in good condition. They should be all bleached out by the sun and tattered. It would just be good to know. Again, I could not definitely tie any of those to the plane, but it was suspicious. We've heard nothing. I'd like to hear a report from the Royal Malaysia Police on that. Those would be the two things. But the main thing is to just say to Malaysia, if Ocean Infinity comes to you with a proposal of where to search, please give it another go. You've got nothing to lose. 
just before we finish Blaine just uh, we'll, we'll go to final thoughts very shortly but I just want to finish up in general about uh, your thoughts on how the the media has dealt with with all this well at first Malaysia 370 absolutely consumed the oh, media. 24 it hours 24 7 yeah. it was just all the time and uh, I think that there was the tendency on the part of the mainstream media to jump to the conclusion that the pilot did it. I think that was premature. Uh, could be correct, we don't know, but it was premature. And then they just dropped it. It's like we got the U.S. presidential election, Trump, Clinton, we got the impeachment now of course there's co coronavirus mm -hmm. uh, malaysia 370 has just been reduced to a blip to an asterisk that to me is not acceptable we can't forget the people on board we can't forget the flying public we need to know what happened to this plane and I understand that there's Brexit and all these other very big issues that are happening that people are focused on, especially the coronavirus. We need to deal with that before anyone can go anywhere and do anything. But I don't want to see Malaysia 370 forgotten. Yeah. So I appreciate that you, I recently did a documentary with uh, News Corps uh, in Australia, and I may be doing some others. Uh, where I participate in them. I hope that these documentary shows keep going. I hope that the news will not forget about Malaysia 370. And it, it keeps it in the public eye, which is the most important thing, and it's one of the reasons why I, I continue to uh, do uh, episodes like this uh, with, with guests like yourself, because it's important to keep it uh, first and foremost. Because no matter how much we believe whether it's 10%, 20, 30% chance there could have been something technical that happened, we need to know. We need to be able to eliminate that absolutely. Um, yes, we do. We need to know. And, and God forbid, if something did happen, as we're increasingly moving towards something nefarious, we need to, just like we had to do with German wings, we need to do things that ensure that cannot happen again. Exactly. Whether it's looking at uh, aircraft systems, uh, cockpit sterility again that we already looked at, that we thought, I suppose it's the old adage, in a sense that 9-11 introduced us to the threats from outside the cockpit. More recent cases, particularly German wings, have introduced us to, well okay if you lock down the whole cockpit and it's totally sterile, you need to make sure that the people sitting in that cockpit are absolutely 100% responsible and yes. to be doing what they're doing because if they're not you create a whole new problem yes we we need the truth whatever it is whatever no matter how unsavory it is that's what the truth is yeah Blaine before we finish do you have any final thoughts I mean your general input now in MH370 I know you continue uh, probably with a slightly less of a profile, uh, you're obviously key to keep this uh, in the public uh, uh, domain. I do not want to 
go down in the history of Malaysia 370 as the person who found uh, or handed in half of the recovered pieces of the yeah, plane. Yeah. I want this to end that I found some pieces of the plane that were a small part of a very large puzzle that contributed to solving this mystery. I want it to be known what happened. I want the plane to be found. I want the truth known. So I don't think that any of the surface debris is going to really change the equation now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Madagascar is willing to do and happy to do. They've always been very cooperative and dedicated. They're willing to do a search of the coastline. It requires money. There probably would not be many more pieces that actually washed ashore, but there may be some in villages that debris was found by local people and being used because local people make use of the things that they find that wash ashore on the beach. So there may be some things there that provide some answers, but I don't see that surface debris is really going to change the equation now. Barring some personal effect that had a cell phone in it with a video of the last moments on the plane, unless something like that is recovered, and it never has been, uh, I was looking for something like that, but never. Barring that, I don't think that the surface debris is going to make any big difference. It would have been too long. It wouldn't point back to where it came from. It would have washed in and washed out. We wouldn't know when it arrived. And it'll probably just be more of the same, you know, small shattered pieces of cabin debris. We know that the cabin is not intact underwater. Some people still say it is. They're simply ignoring the debris when yeah. they say that. So all I can do is, is being so far the person who's found some pieces of this plane, even though not the most significant one, is to just be an inspiration to search on, to keep this in the public eye, and to ensure that we can get, one way or another, a ship back in the water looking for this plane and hopefully find it. I believe that we're going to find the crash site in my lifetime. I hope that it's part of a search. Uh, otherwise, maybe, who knows, sometime when I'm 90 years old, some mining company may be looking for something and find the plane wreckage. I don't want it to end like that. I, I want to get the find the crash site and get the truth before that while there's still hope of recovering information from the flight data recorder. I have not given up hope on that. So anything I can do to help keep this alive, keep this in the public eye, and get the search started, I'd like to know. Because the truth, and especially the proof, are underwater. Yes. And we need to know what happened for the families and for the flying public. Absolutely, and I'm, I'm sure your your sentiments and thoughts uh, also extend to people still interested in this case. That you know to keep yes. the pressure and the attention up 
and just you know hey everybody maybe just a little bit less of the crazy theories because you're not helping a little less of the crazy theories i'm i'm open to theories that are supported by evidence but i don't like to see this club thing almost like the english football league where there's the south china yeah. sea club there's the uh, bay of bengal club or uh, the cambodia jungle or kazakhstan yeah. or the deep Southern, Southern Indian Ocean, Roaring Forties, controlled ditching theory. I'm yeah. sorry, it was the controlled ditching. The wing flap proved that. There may have been a glide that threw it off the seventh arc. That's possible. That can be looked at. But this wasn't a controlled ditching. So get over the pet theories. Mm -hmm. Get over the agendas to blame it on somebody you don't like. And let's just focus join together on finding the plane and not make it personal. If, if you want to put your theories out there, that's fine. But don't personally attack and defame someone who disagrees with you and someone who produces evidence that contradicts your theory. It's, it's about finding the truth, whatever it is. It's not about proving some theory. I was right and you were wrong. Yeah, and I know that the families don't like a lot of the far-out theories. It doesn't help them deal with it either. Let's be open to new evidence. Let's be open to different ideas. But let's make these decisions and this search based on science. Absolutely. And based on analysis. And that sounds like another crisis that we're dealing with right now. <laughs> we need decisions based on science. Yeah, absolutely. Blaine Allen Gibson, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you uh, this morning, um, and we'll talk soon again. Well, I hope to meet you in person, and we were going to do this we in were, person. We were going to do that. Uh, I uh, wanted to stop <laughs> off in Europe, meet you, and do this in person, but we can't. So, but, but this has been great, and search on and keep hope alive. Thank you, Blaine Allen Gibson. Thank talk you, soon. Bye bye. Bye bye. Okay, thank you for joining us, uh, and thanks to Blaine, uh, most importantly, uh, for joining us. That's uh, a wrap for episode 13. Again, apologies there, I think about 25-30 minutes in there, uh, Blaine's video seemed to freeze. It didn't affect the ultimately the, uh, the interview, we still heard uh, Blaine's audio. Um, thank you, and RadioAspoil.com, you can find us on most social media uh, platforms. Um, it's great that you've joined us and we'll talk again soon. You have been listening to Radio Aspile, a series of podcasts brought to you across the internet by TIPM Media and presented by investigative journalist Mick Rooney. Please feel free to leave a comment and visit our links provided in this podcast production. Thank you for your support.